And welcome in to another edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover, joining you from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, from Gainesville, Florida. We've got Kyle Crooks, and in the center of the screen from, I guess, New York, John Shambi, John Boog Shambi from ESPN joins us. And John, how's everything going with you today? Good. How are you guys doing? What's happening? It, we've been going good. You know, finally we get some college sports for us that, that are coming back. But for you, you know, finishing up a baseball season, I know you got KBO early in the morning, too. It just... What uh, what was baseball season like for you calling games off of a monitor? Certainly different this year, right? Yeah, it was weird. It was weird. It was hard. It was uh, not as much fun, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, especially when you get to the postseason and you're doing the biggest games, you know, whether it's TV or radio and you're calling them from, you know, remote location after having done it, you know, uh, on site for so long, it was just a really, it was an odd experience and it just kind of underlines, you know, all the things that you miss about the job. Did you have any specific moments that were really frustrating, like maybe judging fly balls or just certain elements of the game that were really hard to try and call off a monitor? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think, for, you know, you were, you're never going to be you know, a hundred out of a hundred on fly balls, but I would say even in the ballpark, you know, even that you're going to mess up from time to time. I would say a couple of things. One, a rocket that was hit hard and low to third, you, the, the camera's not quick enough to let you know whether the guy caught it on a bounce or not. So when you're calling it, especially on the radio, you know, you're just saying line to third and then the third baseman throwing it to first and now you're realizing, okay, so it bounced. I think that, you know, there are some other subtleties. I think the hardest play was anything hit into a gap with multiple base runners on base because that play where if you're at the park, your eyes are, you know, to the gap, to the runners, to the gap, to the runners, you know, trying to locate that information on multiple screens was just super challenging. And then a play had happened probably three or four times where there'd be a close play at the bag on a tag play and the umpire would be in the shot. And nobody thinks about that, but no one's shooting it incorrectly. Like people don't, people at home don't even realize that the camera the job to execute there is to execute the picture of the play. And I tell you that the umpire is standing over him, putting his arms out, and I say, safe. And the people at home don't even process that I'm the one that's letting them know because I can see the umpire and they can't. But then, you know, there were times where you know, at a game late in the year in San Diego where the Dodgers are playing the Padres and Betts is at third, Justin Turner, it's a chopper to Machado, Mookie's going on contact. They run him back to third and play a third end. Where's the umpire? I can't see the umpire. What happened? You know what I mean? Like, because it yeah. just, um, and that's annoying. That's annoying. I, it just, you know, um, it is what it is, but it's, I, I just think that, so that's the technical stuff, and then not being at the ballpark. You're just slowly but surely you're not delivering on the level of broadcast that you want. You know, the, the example I gave that's it'll seem trivial, but if you, add, you know, the way I like to do the job, if you add them all up, 
the first night uh, of the season was a big game, and it drew a lot of eyeballs. It was really the first sporting event back. It was the Yankees at the Nationals, and it was Scherzer against Cole. And Scherzer had started Game 7 of the World Series, and it was in Houston, which is a DH park. And Scherzer took batting practice before game seven of the World Series because he likes the what it does for his body, et cetera. So he was asked during summer camp after it was announced that the National League would go DH, you know, so would you think about taking BP this year, even though the National League isn't going to let the pitchers hit? And he's like, yeah, I'm actually, I'm thinking about it. So I'm in Bristol and I am texting every player, coach, media person, hey, did Scherzer hit? Does anybody know if Max Scherzer took batting practice today? And nobody knew. And it is the type of thing that if I was, now nobody knew because they're all on the field taking batting practice with masks on, they don't have full jersey, no one's paying attention to it. But it's something that if I was there, I would find it out in two seconds. And all for a note that is not earth-shattering in any way to tell people, hey, this year the National League is going to go with the DH rule, but Max Scherzer on days that he starts is still going to take batting practice. So, um, yeah, so I, it's just that, that type of stuff adds up and will add up in terms of what, you know the level of what you're getting and going to get. And what about working with your partners, and especially for you on TV so much, you have a three-man booth. We saw you a lot with Chipper and then Rick Sutcliffe. Uh, what was the chemistry like trying to talk to them and make sure you have as fluid a broadcast as you can in unique circumstances like this? I'd say the three-man was was really difficult to execute consistently without stepping on each other. You just, when you're in the same space, the nonverbal of looking at each other and knowing I'm finishing and then there's a delay in the mix and we're all on sort of different timing. Like the, it, technically the fact that I'm in Bristol and they're both on home systems changes the timing. So yeah, that was, that was hard. And it's, and you know, I've changed my opinion on a three-man booth. I think all things being equal, I'm of the opinion that baseball in 2020, now I reserve the right to change my opinion, but compared to seven years ago, if you want to do your best, and this is not knocking anyone, but if you want to put your best broadcast out there, you need three guys. There's too much time. There's too much time to fill. There's, there's too much time where the ball isn't in play. Um, the ball's in play less than it's ever been. The games are longer than it's ever been. And the amount of time between pitches is longer than it's ever been. You are being asked to fill so much more content. If you were to sit there, you guys, you'd be staggered at if you took, uh, if you took a radio play by play guy that's doing the, whoever it is, if you took a radio play by play guy that's working today that was doing it 12 years ago and i'm not saying this to f say feel bad but if you were to and he worked 162 games the amount of time he is working more than he did 12 years ago would blow you away 
Like the amount of time you're just on the air. So I just think to execute something that's interesting, that has energy, you 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 need three guys. But in this setting, I it's it's too challenging to to execute, in my opinion. I don't. We didn't. It it just was. It was easier when it was me and Sut or me and Chipper and not not the three of us. So the technical part of it was just really hard. And I know for you coming into this season, you were looking forward to working with Chipper. You guys had, of course, been on the Braves at the same time, and you were calling Braves games, and he was playing. Uh, and it, I really enjoyed getting to hear both of you guys talk together because it seemed like that relationship that began so many years ago in a Braves clubhouse or even when you were working with the Marlins, that seemed to carry over really well. Just what did you think of his first year getting to work with you in a role like that? Yeah, he did a good job. I, it, it just it would have been much more fun and much better and I think he would have had a chance to get even better if we had been next to each other. There are just so many things that I'm not even, you know, he's in his house. There's so many things that he can't see, he can't look at. Our, you know, my ability to influence him, make him feel more comfortable, draw stuff out of him is just greater when he is sitting next to me. And, uh, yeah, I, I just so it was fun. We had a good time. You know, I, I think that he if there's one component that I think that really, you know, that, that came across with him, it'd be he's super likable. Like, I think that he came across as being more likable than people realize. Not that he wasn't, but I mean it in an active sense that he was playful and fun and had passion for it. Um so I, I I enjoyed it. I would have enjoyed it a lot more if we had been at a ballpark and he was sitting next to me, and it would have been a lot better. And I love listening to you on Sunday night on the radio, like on a summer night. It just kind of feels right. It, John Shambi on the radio on a Sunday night. But the, the chemistry that you have with Chris Singleton, how did that – is that something that developed on air? Because like, it sounds like you guys are really close friends. Yeah, you're making me smile. Um so just as a good example, the first thing that I think about is for all the games that I worked this year, the one thing that the, – so the playoffs was frustrating because we had to do it from Bristol. The one thing that was fun, at least about the playoffs, was that they they brought everybody in. So at least you had another human next to you. But because Chris does the World Series, and deservedly so, he was with Dan – so I did not work a game this year with Chris next to me. And that just stunk. Um, yes, the chemistry that Chris and I have developed over time. He's a really good friend. I, I just, I appreciate him. He's a great human. I appreciate him both on and off the air. We both have a natural playfulness. We both like to poke fun at each other. And the biggest thing that, you know, the chemistry allows us to do is, you know, most people probably don't realize that a standard baseball broadcast, like not national radio, but a standard baseball broadcast is two play-by-play guys. And so what it's your inning or my inning. And the other guy who's not calling the play-by-play does color 
but it's more my inning. And so it's not a straight one-to-one, you know, play-by-play and analyst type of situation. And on the radio, because the thing that's of paramount importance is describing what is happening on the field, I'm taking up more space. I mean, I take up space, but I, I, I'm taking up more space. And so what my job is, is to try and be as descriptive as I possibly can. That's what I really want to do it, but do it as efficiently as possible so that there is space for he and I to um, to get everything in. I, it, it's, it's not the, the, the greatest analogy, but I, I would describe it, and when we're really good from a technical standpoint, we do something that's hard, and, and we, we, we pack a suitcase in the most impeccable way possible. So you get one of these carry-ons, and all of a sudden, we're able to fit 11 days worth of clothes in a carry-on in a nice, neat way. And it's like, wow, how'd you fit all that stuff in there? And it didn't look like the suitcase was going to explode. So that we're just able to just weave the stuff in. Like one of the things, you know, I have a card that I read going to break. And so there are times where Chris will be making a point and he'll lay out for me to call the pitch. And I know that he wants to tag it. So it's a routine ground ball to short. And I know I still have to read my card, but I he's laid out and I want to let him tag what he's saying. So I'm already in my head on a ground ball to short you know, short over to first and then letting him back in. And he knows he has just this little bit of space to tag his comment so that I can still get the card in so that we can come back and not miss the first pitch of the next inning. And it's little nerdy stuff like that, but that's the stuff that we do pretty seamlessly. And it's just taken a lot of time and I love it. I love how naturally it, it comes to us. It's, uh, and we, you know, our producer, Justin Ware is great, but yeah, we, we get into nerdy baseball stuff. He likes to make fun of me. I make fun of him. It's just, it's a, it's a blast. I love it. I, I do want to get into your journey. You know, what was that first play by play tape like for you and, and you know eventually getting to the Marlins and, and I'll tag the, the back end of this question will be like you know what was Wrigley feel like that night in, in 2003 the Steve Bartman game <laughs> for Marlins radio uh, you saw the, the success of the Marlins when you were there what was that night like and, and what were the early years like getting into play by play so I was doing talk radio in Miami and then I would go to <clears throat> games I always, baseball was always my love. I had no experience calling it. I would go and call games into a tape recorder at Marlins Park. And then I put a tape together. I gave it to Dave O'Brien, who's the voice of the Red Sox now, to listen to, to critique it, and a couple of other people. And he, he had the great line. He, he told me, I gave him the tape. He listened to it, and he said, hey, I, you, know, I, you know, let's sit down and we'll go over it. And as he gave me the tape back, he held up the tape, the cassette, and he said, you know, I thought this was really going to stink. And it didn't. And that was his compliment. So <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll take it. And from there, I got a job in Boise. And then 
you know, the Marlins were restructuring their broadcast teams and they really were looking for a fourth guy that was travel pre post a little bit of play by play in game scores. I really lucked out. I really lucked out. And I had done some stuff. That was at a time when Wayne Heisenga owned three of the four franchises down in South Florida. And I had already done some stuff on the Panthers radio network the year they went to the Stanley Cup. So I just got kind of lucky there and and then climbed and got, you know, a little more play-by-play, a little more play-by-play until, you know, Dave Van Horn and I were working together and he was the number one guy and I was the number two guy. As far as game six, it was, uh, yeah, that, that team was pretty was pretty special because it was all a group of guys around my age. You know, the Mike Lowell's, the Jeff Conines, the Mike Redmond's, Brian Banks, Andy Fox. And then all these young guys, like younger guys, like Derek Lee and Brad Penny, who I had known since they were babies. So it was super personal. And, you know, for them to come back, I still can remember in that inning. It was Dave's inning, so I didn't call the play. But we had incorporated the TV voices were Len Casper and Tommy Hutton, and we had incorporated them into the broadcast. So they would each do an inning with us. And I remember in that eighth inning, Len was sitting behind me on the steps. And I just can remember when Mike Mordecai hit the bases clearing double. As soon as there was contact, he like grabbed the back of my arm. And then as soon as it landed, he grabbed my arm again. And then you could tell everybody was going to score and he just kept grabbing my arm. Um, The one other thing I'll tell you is, um, and this is, you know, a little bit nerdy. So everyone talks about game six, but in game seven, the Marlins jumped out to an early lead. And Kerry Wood tied the game with a home run. And there are some people, I'm one of them, I was not there for the playoff run in 16, but there are some people that'll tell you the loudest they've ever heard Wrigley Field was when Kerry Wood hit that home run. All I can tell you is I felt unsafe in the press box. <laughs> like it was moving and it it was, yeah, it was unsafe. But that, you know, that, that uh, that postseason run was amazing. You know, like I, there's just so many different. Like there was one really funny one. Mike Lowell was an MVP candidate that year. I think he had 32 home runs that season. But he got hit on the hand the last day of of, of August by I think it was Hector Almonte and broke his hand. And so that led them to trade for Jeff Conine and they put Miguel Cabrera at third and Mike eventually healed and, but wasn't a hundred percent. And to the point where he didn't play in the Giants series, I don't believe. And he didn't start game one of the NLCS, but he came off the bench and he hit a home run in the 10th that ended up being the difference in that game. He had a pinch hit solo homer. And I think the Marlins won 
that game by a run in extra innings. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. But the thing that I remember was that the next day, uh, running into Mikey in a store somewhere in downtown Chicago, and he's like, come here. And he hands me his phone, and the Red Sox were playing the Yankees. And so... They hadn't started their series, but the Red Sox were in New York. And our buddy, former Marlin, Kevin Millar, um, called Mike when he came up to pinch hit and left him like a three-minute voicemail. Now, this is 03, and this is – Mike and I have talked about it. One of his great regrets is he didn't keep this vo- – but Kevin did play-by-play of the at-bat. So huh. it's like – Michael, Kevin always used to make fun of Mike's body, that Mike had like kind of a soft body with love handles. So it's just like, oh, here we go, big boy. Oh, look at those obliques. They're looking good. You've been hitting <laughs> the abs before. The forearms are looking pretty tight. All right, good take, good take. And then, you know, just cursing and, and calling the home run. It was one of the funniest things uh, ever. And then the other story that I've told nine million times is that, so the Marlins eventually win, but they were a game behind. And and that was the first year that home field in the All-Star or home field in the World Series was determined by the All-Star game winner. And that was the American League. But the National League had already decided. So we're sitting in New York and we don't know where we're going. We just know we're going to the American League city. So we sit in the ballroom of the Westin Hotel in Chicago watching Grady Little leave Pedro in. (laughs) Eventually, the traveling secretary gets, you know, I think there were three buses. We got to go to the airport. And we drive to the airport. And and we get to the airport, and the game is in extra innings. And they will not let us, our plane is, we can see it. They will not let us on the tarmac. We are outside the charter area with the gate closed because we don't have a destination. So they won't let us on the plane. And I mean, I still, we, and so we're sitting on the buses, three buses, listening to John Miller on ESPN radio. And Boone comes up and it's swung on, belted, deep left field. And the gate starts to open up as. And the Yankees are going to the world. And we're driving onto the tarmac, and we get on the plane and fly to New York. Wow. That's awesome. That's a great story, and I love hearing anytime Boomer is mentioned, uh, one of the great people I got to know in my time uh, working for the Marlins double-A team. So that's really good. He's the best. Uh, Speaking of John Miller, and uh, I can really look to my baseball play-by-play career as before I heard you on Joel Gadet's podcast and after I heard you on that, because the way you broke down how Uh, important the pitch is and just setting up the pitch. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it changed my career, honestly. It changed my pace. It got everything in line. So we just love for you to explain why that's so important to young broadcasters that are listening. All right, so I will say, as as an interviewee, you have officially sucked me in. Like that, so, yeah, you get it. I mean, I, it's not like there's a ton of people out there that understand what we do. I mean, I, in terms of the, you know, the, the 
technical part of it. But John Miller explained it to me however many years ago, and it was the greatest piece. I still think of it now. I still... So anyway, you asked me to explain it. The piece of advice that he gave that I try to give any young broadcaster is this, that from a technical standpoint, the best thing that you can do is you want to start every play so that it's not, you don't want it to be a conversation, there's a ball outside, and we're just chatting fouled back. Like, let me know when the action is. You need to hear somewhere in my voice something in terms of spacing that will let you know, here comes a pitch. You know what I mean? It needs to, There needs to be a change in intonation, a pause, something. And then the other thing is that from a timing standpoint, that you need to start it before you think you need to. Because you can't say, here's the 2-1 perfectly in sync with the pitcher throwing it because the ball gets to the plate faster than your words come out of your mouth. Think about that for a second. But it is interesting. If you say here's the pitch perfectly timed up, the TCH is getting clipped when it's well mic'd by the ball hitting the bat or by the ball hitting the glove. And as a radio guy, you're trying to use the sounds of the park. So what you want is on a ground ball to short, you don't want it to be, if, if you're hearing the ball hit the bat, you don't want it to be, here's the pitch. You want it to be, here's the pitch. Swing and a ground ball to short. Gathered in by Everett. Throw to first, one down. That's how you use, you want to hear the ball hit the bat. That's why... Any highlight call for me, the first thing I'm hearing is I want to hear the space between here's the 2-1, here's the pitch, and the ball hitting the bat, and then the play-by-play starts. That's my technical thing. And then the other part of it is when you do that, it puts you in a position to not chase the play. So, and I it's... I mean, I've been doing this a long time, and there, I still will have days where, yeah, I'm not great, where I, I'm just, I'm not on my game. And when I'm frustrated with my timing, I go back to that. I go back to that all the time, but where all I'm doing, I make it more boring, that's for sure, but where I'm just fixated on... Cole on the mound, turns, kicks, fires, and a fastball is high, and it's ball one. And then, and but we're just or on the pitcher, and I want it back so that like, and the play is starting again. The two one to the plate. St- all you, that's what you're focusing on, just to get your timing, and you keep getting that timing, and then you can get yourself back in sync. But John gave that that to me. I've told him. I've told him that uh, before, and it was funny. I, I told him that, I've told him that a couple of times, but one of the times I told him, it kind of stopped him, and he's like, oh, that is that is good advice. Uh, I probably should be doing that a little bit more. It was really funny. It was like, 
Um, but he just, and, and I don't look, it is technical advice from Picasso. One guy's opinion, okay? Vin Scully's a one-man show, and he doesn't do it anymore. The only guy that could have gone in there and done the same thing is John, in my opinion. He's an artist. He He's fun. He's funny. If you ever get a chance, go to YouTube or Google um, his call of Ruben Rivera's base running. You know, the, the play a couple years ago uh, where we, we're all still going to, you know, make mistakes. We got a lot of names in our head. We're going to misspeak. I think that's one of the things that the average fan doesn't understand, that when you're concentrating that long for that hard, that sometimes you're just going to misspeak. You're just – I know Mike Trout's first name is Mike, but if I call him Steve – because I'm distracted by another Steve on the field or something else. It's not that I don't know that Mike Trout's name is Mike Trout. You just, every once in a while, your brain. So John didn't look at his scorecard a couple years ago. And, um, you know, the, the great, you know, Grand Slam by Buster Posey's good friend, Hunter Pence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. That, I mean, that, like. A mistake right there underlines how brilliant that guy is, you know, and uh, he just has a way with, you know, with language. He uses his voice so well in a way that, you know, I'm not, I wish I was that good at using it, but, you know, and that whole crew is, is great. But anyway, yeah, I... I've taken enough time on that, but yeah, that I, I remember, I remember doing that interview. I do. And, and it's, it's the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten. It still applies today. I like telling it to young broadcasters whenever I can. Yeah. It certainly helped me out. Like I always watch kind of the pitcher's legs and like, as soon as he started to rock back, that's when I'd say, here's the one, two, here's the one, one, here's the pitch. We're really getting into it from there. Screw you, right? Sometimes yeah. something happened out of the stretch where you're trying to be so far ahead of it where they'll spin and they'll throw to first. Here comes the one, two. Nope, throw to first. It's fine. It's fine. So, yeah. And kind of with that on radio as well, talking about baseball play-by-play on the radio, how do you try to balance the fine line between trying to be as direct as possible while also using the freedom to paint the picture as vividly as you can with your vocabulary? So what I would say is the things that I came up with, there's sort of ways to cheat and also get better. But I think that I I built up muscles, for lack of a, a better phrase, on the most routine plays, really paying attention. So on a fly ball to right field, where the right fielder barely has to move, you really give him movement, even though it's slight. So high fly ball right field, bets towards the line, one more step to his left, reaches out, and puts a squeeze on it. 
Like, nothing's happening there. Nothing's happening there. Round ball to short. Seeger, two steps to his left, gobbles it up. Like, I'm giving him move. It might be, it, think about it. I mean, he's just moving a step to his left or bounce to third. Turner reaches down, picks it up. Like, I'm just, I'm utilizing these. It's cheating. It's just a ground ball to third. It's right at him. But I'm, I'm just describing them, and, and you get that active, even on the most routine play. And what I would say is by, you know, uh, ground ball to first, Muncy reaches to his left, scoops it up. He'll take it himself, steps on the bag with his left foot. That type of stuff. I think by always being in that mode and, and on those non-pressure plays, you're building up some muscle memory so that on the really fast plays, I find that the uh, that the descriptive stuff will spill out, if that makes sense. So that on a rocket up the middle, you know, Hard hit ground ball up the middle. Seeger dives. It's off his glove. He picks it up with a bare hand. Throw to first. You know what I mean? And and you get everything. Um, because my muscles are sharp. That's sort of the way I would describe it. So instead of grounded to third, turn it to first. Like give him some movement. Give him some movement. Like constantly be practicing actions, moving right to left. You know, or left to right, or bare hand or, you know, glove or um, low throw or even pick or, you know, it's a thing I, I say when Mike Trout gets in the box, I'll say stocky right-handed hitter. If you listen to the broadcast, I got a pretty good idea, you know, Mike Trout hits right-handed. All I'm doing is trying to activate in your mind's eye picturing Mike Trout. Yeah, Mike Trout, stop. you know, like you're, I'm, I'm trying to activate that. That's, those are the types of things when I'm giving when I'm giving movement and action, uh, that's what I'm trying to do. And vocally for you on the air, baseball has that rocking chair rhythm where you can kind of be sing-songy, conversational with your voice. How long did it take you to get where you kind of meshed, you know, conversational John, real-life John to broadcast John? Like get all that together where it doesn't sound like you're Mr. Broadcaster guy. Yeah. Um, I wish I could tell you. I, I think. I think the biggest challenge. What you're trying to do is you're trying to make the gap between what you're like on the air and off the air as thin as possible, in my opinion. I think especially on TV for me, I I think I've made strides even, you know, in the last 10 years because of just my most authentic self, you know, where <clears throat> there's a, there's a, it's stupid, but there, we're doing, I mean, I'm doing a playoff game on ABC and they have, you know, now they have these squeeze back commercials and they had one for the Hartford and it was like a, a faux haircut shop and it was called Hair by Hugo. 
And it's, I'm doing the Marlins and the Cubs. Well, the Marlins barber is named Hugo. <laughs> so I'm like, Chipper. I'm like, that commercial right there. You know, like, just it's the type of stuff that if we were sitting next to each other, you could be damn sure I'm bringing up. So I'm just trying to bring me to it. And then I, I think the other beside this is. So that technical advice is John Miller advice that I, you know, was gifted with and passed along because I think it's so good. My opinion, my opinion, and as I get older, I'm sure it sounds. Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't know how it sounds necessarily, but I how people perceive it. But I think that one of the biggest challenges with baseball is baseball is, in my opinion, a really white conservative sport. And I think that we all get into it, no matter what you want to say, most broadcasters go into it and somewhere in the back or front of their mind, they're trying to sound like a 60-year-old white guy. And when you're 28, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like ground ball to short, and that's just what the doctor ordered. And I still fight spitting out stupid shit like that. Can I curse? I just oh, yeah. go for it. It's YouTube. It's so. But just let's just be a little more. I want there to be a broadcast and I want there to be some formality to it, but I don't want you to sound sound age appropriate. And I think guys fight that. And I want you to use words that you use in everyday life. That Again, this is still, this is John Shambi's opinion, but don't use a ton of stuff that you wouldn't use. Um, Every day, you know, broadcastery phrases. Um, just try and get away from that because that's going to get you more towards your natural sound. I think we, we all do it. I still fight it sometimes on, like, you know, just a broadcaster autopilot thing. But I, I think that, you know, one thing at a time, I would still say, I don't think you you go about I think until you can really feel like you nail the technical portion then I I personally think that's the progression of it I don't think until you feel as though you know they could land a UFO on the field in the third and you describe it and sneak the play-by-play -play in and you're just like we're good and then you really start to feel as though um yeah that you're comfortable with how with how you sound and the things you'll talk about and the way you describe um you know if i say you know can of corn stuff like you know i and some guys can pull it i i guess i shouldn't you know never say never and what's the age cut off and but i i guess it's just you know it's i I feel like, you know, we know when it's age appropriate and when it's and when it's not. So just try and be because it, it runs the risk of just sounding stiff to me. One of our final ones, what's your preparation look like? 
So you're going into cities to have yeah. a radio game on Sunday, television yeah. game on Wednesday. Yeah. What 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 are you bringing with you to the ballpark in terms of notes and stats and all that good stuff? So I'm usually toting around. I do my card. I do a scorecard. Uh it's just the way I ended up doing it. I, I mean, for some time I had, when I did a team, I had a book, but I like cards. And so, I mean, just so for the, well, yeah, you asked regular season, but I, for the most part, if it's, let's say it's August and I have the Dodgers nationals Saturday and Sunday on the radio, um, in dc and then i don't know the phillies and the cubs on wednesday i'll have all my i'll have all my dodgers nationals cards from this year uh i'll have my cubs phillies cards from this year i have a book with like relevant notes as it relates to um i wish i had this out but like you know let's see here um where's that book yeah hang on um stand by caller (laughs) hang on all right here we go all right so hang on okay and we're back. Um, all right, so prep-wise, here's one of my th- – this is going to sound – I mean, so I'm always – Inside Edge is a, is a good Twitter follow. They, they have good statistical stuff. So at the beginning of the season, I, because I'm an, I still do a lot of – I'm not the most organized cat, but, like, I have a, you know, a book that I keep here that has, you know, probably the 20 most – frequently broadcasted teams so I'll uh, I'll just start with like notes um, and and they do a preview with it with inside edge so the beginning of the year so I'm always looking for that the beginning of the year I always get this I get Athlon they all you're always gonna find like two one or two good notes for every team that from last year. And then, so like I have that in, let me see if I can find, can I find one good one in here for you? But like, and then what I'm, and then what I'll do is that it's the type of thing where, um, yeah, where I will go and look at um, maybe an update on that stat for this year. And then the other thing is I have generic numbers I mean, like, I'm nerdy. So, like, okay, so here's my book with all the teams, but then here's some of the other things. I have, like, league-wide trends in here. Okay, so I'm just going all over the place. You don't care, do you? No. So, no. like, for example, Good stuff. I have um, in 2019 15 guys through 200 innings. In 2015, it was 28. In 2010, it was 45. In 2005, it was 50. So just generic sort of state of the game stuff. In 2010, 
50% of all starts, the pitcher went 100 pitches. In 2019, it was 24%. Um, I have league strikeout rates. Um, you know, pitchers hit 128 last year with a strikeout rate of 44%. That was going into this year. So I, I have this book. There's always, like, general things that, you know, like that we're going to talk about so that if a guy doesn't go 100 pitches, you know, I might take the conversation to, you know, nowadays, like I think this year, by the way, so it was in 2010, it was 50% went 100 pitches, 19, it was 24%. It was a short, but I think it was like 12% this year. It was 14. Sorry, I have it here. It was 14%. So from 2010 to 19 to 20, it went from 50%, 24%, 14 Just interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, you, most people don't know, know. So I have that type of shit written down um, and researched. Um, and then uh, I'll also take... I, I'll also... So I mentioned I bring my cards. So, like... If that was this year, I would have. I'd also bring my five-game playoff cards from the Nats and the Dodgers from last year, just in case there's something I'd want to follow up on. And then the biggest thing for me is, and that's why this year just sucked. You get all these good things, and then you know, I've been doing this a while, so. You know, my access is good, so my ability to go ask these guys to connect with the general managers, the managers, and the players, and get them to tell me stories, humanize stuff, and you see these players more and more, I just, you know, there's just, and so to get in front of them, even something as simple as, you know, the year the Red Sox won it all in 18, you know, we, we had them a ton, obviously. Um, I don't know if you heard, we do the Yankees, the Red Sox, and ESPN a bunch. Um, yes. But like Mookie, you know, we, I mean, you just see him all the time and you just get. So I did a pregame interview with him. And one of the things I know about Mookie is he hates being cold. Hates it. So it could be 100 degrees and he has thermals on under his uniform. I'm serious. And... When it is 65 or less, he will wear two pairs of batting gloves. He's the only guy I've ever heard of that will wear batting gloves on top of batting gloves. And I had him go through his whole, when it's this temperature, I'm wearing this. When it's this temperature, I'm wearing, I mean, just whatever. I asked him about, if you remember in 17, Benintendi, Betts, and Bradley would dance in the outfield. They do wind dance repeat, and they dance in center field. But then they didn't in 18. And what happened was Benintendi and Bradley didn't want to dance, and Mookie did. And they voted. And he's like, yeah, I got outvoted. He's like, I tried to get JD as a fourth outfielder in DH to maybe get a push, and then we go to a different committee. JD was not interested. So it's that, you know, like, so you get these nuggets, and you get a statistical piece of information you ask a guy about, or a personal piece of information and then you get the stories and you you humanize guys and I love that part of it. I love getting to tell 
um, I love getting to tell guys stories. It's just, it's, it's so much fun and getting the access that the fans can't get. So yeah, prep's a, a big thing. It's, it's, you know, I carry around this whole bucket of information that I, that I tote around and, and look, I call people, um, you know, I try as much as I can. I try to talk to, I like talking to most of the GMs when I can to get more background stuff. Like, I don't, I don't want it to be, I talk to general manager X. I just don't want to stay, say stupid shit. I want to know how do you see your team? You know, in, in four weeks, this guy's coming back off the DL. Who's vulnerable? So I can say this guy might be vulnerable. Not the GM told me this guy's vulnerable. So, but you're taking all that stuff. And when you're, when you're, you know, with all the, you know, it's like Daniel Vogelback. He, if, if you ever watched he, when he hits, he doesn't strap his batting gloves. Whatever. On TV, it's a great little bit, though. And one of the games that we did, we, they showed it, and one of the teams beefed about it, and they made him cut off the Franklin strips because they were just flapping all over the place. I like stuff like that. You know, just those those types of things. I mean, there's just there's a million of them. It's, it's how the Chipper Jones story happened. Mm-hmm. Like, for whatever anybody... Like, it started because... He was rolling over to second a lot on the first pitch, at least anecdotally to me. And so I wanted to see, was he getting strikes to hit? And then I put it in front of him. Like, that's what I, you know, that's the ultimate is you get all this information, but it's not that I'm just locked away up in my castle. I want to take the interesting shit, the human stuff, and then go ask the guys about it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, for example, I would just, I would have loved to the day before to ask Scherzer about hitting if I could have been there Um, because he would have said something funny. So that part is so much fun. I mean, I I love that part of it. I love getting a good note and then something, whether it's statistical or not, you know, asking some of these guys about, you know, we talk about launch angle, but how some of these guys have changed their swings and and their hitting philosophies and the understanding that so many of these guys have about what they're trying to do at the plate. It's just, there's I, you know, there's so much interesting stuff in this sport, so much interesting stuff. I, I think the postseason was good. I think at times it doesn't uh, profile that way on the field because there's so much time between pitches and the ball's not in play enough. But the adjustments are being are happening at rapid pace and there's a lot of interesting guys and a lot of interesting information. I love preparing for games. Like I love preparing for it. It's so much fun to sit there and get stuff and then scribble down lists and notes. I got to ask this guy about this and that guy about that just to get one. Yeah. Do you know this guy? Blah, blah. It's just, I love it, and I missed the hell out of it this year. I missed it so much. 
Absolutely. Well, we know we're really short on time with you, but did want to ask you real quick. We got college basketball coming up. Kyle and I both yep. do uh, radio for teams and then also do some television style broadcast on the SEC Network Plus platform. Uh, just figuring out the basketball rhythm on TV. You know, there's a lot of times when I transfer over, you know, I kind of uncomfortable with that silence while the ball is in play before a shot goes up. Just how do you feel about the rhythm of basketball? What do you enjoy about calling college basketball on TV? I mean, Kyle, it's such a different animal. I, like my, baseball's my favorite. It's the sport that interests me the most. I think it's the ultimate broadcaster sport because there's so much space to fill. You know, you're the you're the the editor, the ombudsman, the writer. You're all of it, and you just get to decide, and you have a lot of space. With college basketball, you're just I, you're really accenting what's happening, and you're trying to set up your analyst on TV. Um, I haven't I haven't done a ton of basketball play-by-play, or at least not in a while. I, to me, college basketball is about atmosphere. You know, so like I, I, I'm in the Big 12 a lot, so I'm in Lawrence. I mean, the, so Allen Fieldhouse might as well be the third person in our booth because what ends up happening is because it's such a great crowd, if Kansas is down 10 at home, you know, what does a great crowd do? Well, in my opinion, a great crowd in, you know, in basketball, they're not waiting for something great to happen. They're urging their team to make something great happen. So they don't start going bananas when it's tied after they were down 10. They start going bananas when it gets to six after they've been down 10. They're really pushing, urging, and there's so many times where there's a big shot and you can just lay out and you just feel it through the TV. That's where, I mean, college basketball is is so great. But I, I think you're, you're really trying to engage your analyst, um, you know, and set up, ask good questions. You know, for the most part, again, I, you know, back to baseball, I remember Alex Cora went to go do his first game and you know this again just my opinion but like if you work with a new analyst for the first time whether it's radio or tv the basic format in baseball is when the ball's in play the play-by-play guy talks when the ball stops being in play then the analyst talks in basketball for the most part you know when we're under 20-ish 15-ish on the shot clock it's the play-by-play guy ball goes in the basket you tag you finish they start, you know, like that's when the analyst gets in. So it's get in, get out, get in, get out. And it's not going to work perfectly in that regard. But that's sort of the basic the basic outline. You prefer your analyst not talking as the ball goes in the basket is the, you know, the thing as, you know, as a partnership. But, uh, yeah, the atmosphere is is the fun thing. And, and then, you know, just getting to see great players and um, – yeah, it's always. I mean, growing up in New York City, I, I, I love the Big East back in the day, and you know, even now, you know, last year this time I went to the Bahamas, and uh, you know, there were good teams there. Gonzaga was there, Michigan was there, North Carolina was there, uh, Oregon, Seton Hall was. It was, it was fun, and it's the Bahamas. You can't beat that. No doubt about it. Well, John, we appreciate all your time today. Of course, you do a great job on ESPN, both baseball and college basketball. So we look forward to some of your broadcasts coming up. But just thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, you guys. 
Thanks, John. Right. Thanks to John Boog Shambi, and thank you for watching Broadcaster Hour.